0: Joey's Conversations. Today's conversation is with Jonathan Zittrain. He's the faculty director of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society and Harvard Law School professor. In this podcast, we're talking about internet and society and protests, originally recorded as a Facebook Live. Hi, hi Jonathan. Hello, Joey. How are you? you? Close. Here you are. It's good, though. So originally, we were going to do a Facebook Live to sort of talk about the class that we taught together in January. We
1: taught a class together in January. And we should say a little yeah, bit don't you about talk, that. Why
0: don't you, you talk about
1: it. and I taught a class in January, uh, joint Harvard and MIT. It included uh, the usual panoply of students from different schools. It also included a number of assemblers. Uh, you can check that out at www.berkmankleinassembly.org. And these are software developers and a few others from uh, the private sector. Who are taking some sabbatical time uh, to come to our universities and work on some problems that are ecosystem wide with solutions possibly implementable through their respective companies. So that was the idea behind the course, but in some ways we've either been merged with or overtaken by events.
0: And um, somebody was just telling me that the audio was a little bit hot, so I turned it down a bit. Let me know if it's still hot. But yes, and so. You know, we—I felt a little guilty because a lot of my students were out in Copley Square marching as I was coming out to have this conversation. But I decided that the meta conversation and sort of talking a little bit about the long game and tying it into the class that we taught might actually be worth it. So, I decided to con- to do this. But, but maybe you can, um, since you're the lawyer, give us sort of
1: first sort of a, uh, your your view on where we are right now. Well, talk about an open-ended question. We're surely living through extraordinary times right now. We have a new president. Uh, the president has taken abrupt and dramatic and uh, I think it's fair to say extreme action. And we're seeing reaction, uh, not just in coastal cities, although surely there, but also places in the heartland. You're seeing from Nebraska, Facebook Live tweets, photos flowing in, far more, say, than our usual cable networks would be capable. Of covering, If you only got your news, even from Fox, CNN and MSNBC, uh, there was a time last night when the protests at the airports were at their peak and each of those programs had pre-recorded stuff going on uh, that they did not break live to anything. So mm-hmm. we're an era where if you actually want to get a sense of what's going on, it would mm-hmm. only be a sense because it's not representative, mm-hmm. it's not curated. Uh, you're going to find it through another set of gatekeepers, like Facebook, Twitter, mm-hmm. that kind mm-hmm. of thing,
0: which was a, a big part of our um, conversation in the class. But 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 I wanted to. I mean, one of the things that was neat about the class is we had, you know, cryptographers and computer scientists talking to lawyers. And I think one of the uh, aha's was that a lot of engineers think that the law is like geometry; that it exists and. Um, It's like the laws of nature. You sort of figure it out and you calculate the outcome. And in fact, you find out that laws are made and changed and they conflict and sometimes you follow them and sometimes you don't. And I think, by the way, the the converse was true where I think a lot of lawyers and and, and people from the Kennedy School thought that, you know, technologies were these things that just existed and architecture just was. But it turns out it's like Legos more than like dollhouses. And, And... in this particular case, you know, I think what's interesting, I mean, whether you're talking about how the, the whole elector thing with the Hamilton electors and, you know, what is the what, what is legal and what is not, it's state law versus federal. And right now when you have this executive order and then you have, you know, people arguing that it's illegal. And I think what's really interesting is sort of this, um, what's actually happening, right? And so how do protests tie into the interpretation of law and, and how does law play out? Because at the end, it seems like, especially when you have conflicts between the different arms of government and, and federal and state, I mean, like, for instance, the, 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 just the basic question of, is this executive order legal or not? I mean, for sort of lay people like you did in the class, can you play out how that gets figured out? I'm not gonna ask you to opine, but maybe you you, you can if you have an opinion.
1: Well, I can certainly share thoughts in, in progress First, it's maybe worth noticing that oftentimes we all are creatures of habit and technology, uh, like the root from which it is derived, technique, is a way of taking a habit and making it automatic, embedding it in technology so that the tech does the habit instead of a human having to do it. And in the first instance, those are very predictable habits. So technology can be predictable for a time once we've taken a habit we already like and, and reified it, embedded it uh, in technique. And the same thing is true with law. That if every time the law had bearing on something, it was a new corner case of first impression and nobody knew it was going to happen, it wouldn't be predictable, it wouldn't be calculable. And I think we've lived through a bit of an era. As much as we talk about disruption in the past few years, there has been also some measure of predictability. We've gotten a technology, we've gotten used to it, and we've used it a certain way, and ditto for the law. There's a lot, actually, of kind of dark matter. In American constitutional law Mm. that has been dormant for 10, 15, 20 years, maybe going back say to protests around the Vietnam War uh, or around uh, President Nixon and his challenges to the constitutional order. We may soon be seeing some of those dusty areas paid attention to again and Mm. your question was about not just the executive order but the fact that when something happens abruptly and by almost every account this order was abrupt and not even the usual bureaucracy of the US government was Mm -hmm. informed of the order or have a chance to kind of refine it before it was issued on a Friday afternoon. Mm -hmm. And that means you've got people at Customs and Border Protection and at uh, the parent organization, Department of Homeland Security, trying to figure out what it means. Does it cover people with green cards? Doesn't it? And conflicting information Mm -hmm. as you've got people in line with paperwork ready to get into the US. Mm -hmm. So you see then a kind of emergency style situation. Is that person waiting in line going to be put back on a plane? Mm -hmm. That's when you have lawyers going to a Brooklyn district court, to a suburban Virginia district court where Uh, uh, Dulles Airport is, Boston Mm -hmm. uh, uh, where Logan is and the judge having to make a quick decision Mm -hmm. just about do I freeze the status quo, do I try to make it so people aren't sent back. Mm -hmm. These judges appear to have consistently Seattle, Boston, Brooklyn, Virginia each of them said wait a minute we need to take stock and as a result they've ordered the US government Mm -hmm. not to be deporting people already uh, there with otherwise valid competing with the judiciary, mm-hmm. now what? And this might be, we'll see a mm-hmm. contempt and, proceeding. And
0: Immigration law is also pretty obscure, I mean, I, I've, I've had, uh, you know, my share of work with immigration lawyers, and I, I, have, a, I have a great one, and, and the first thing I was doing was calling all the immigration lawyers, the law clinics, ACLU, and just sort of trying to figure out where everyone was, how they're reachable, what their expertise is. But one of the things is that it's it's um because because if i and correct me if i'm wrong but i remember there was a case of a japanese yakuza who uh, had left crime had gone to hawaii uh on a with a tour or something so the, they had just checked off all the boxes saying he, he'd never you know committed crimes when in fact he had so they got him um and they let the family in but they put him in some sort of weird limbo between INS and DOJ sort of moving him back and forth without ever giving him a trial, yes, and always giving him the option to go back to Japan, yes, and, but just kept them in him in limbo. And yeah. there was some other weird case where they they were saying that they, you you could get turned back without having any rights to sort of see evidence and things like that. So so so
1: before you get into the country, you're in this slightly weird place where not all of the due process applies right this is if we were doing native advertising it would call to mind the tom hanks movie uh the terminal (laughs) (laughs) yes yes, modeled on a true story yeah yeah um so yes it's it is you use the word obscure i'd say it's byzantine it's complicated perhaps sometimes intentionally so either Mm -hmm. because people really want to get it right or because uh, it's not meant to be navigable sadly by the person himself or herself trying to get in. That's why you need a lawyer. But I think for many years there had been elements of predictability at least knowing where the unpredictability would be. We're going to go in front of an immigration judge or somebody Mm -hmm. and we don't know what's going to happen but we know in process you do this, then you do that, then you do this other thing. That is now up in the air at the moment Mm -hmm. and everybody is kind of freelancing to figure out. But but isn't it true also that the the immigration officers
0: have a tremendous amount of leeway right i i've i've always been told that they they i mean there's a there's police do too but even more the immigration lawyers so so in this case i'm, I'm curious also because um, we've seen in different uh you know nasa the parks where you're seeing civil servants sort of publicly disobey the president and, yes and and so so how much Sort of, And we, we did jurisdictions in our class. But so how does this sort of state and then the the, the freedom of each of these airports? Because we see these protesters going in and mobbing the airport. Yeah. So whose decision is it to, say, let somebody out of detention?
1: Well, as they sometimes say, possession is 9 tenths of the law. The person with a badge and a sidearm yeah. who's charged with guarding the border is, in the very first instance, going to be the one to make the decision about whom to set free or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the border, the thought is that the president, and then everything under the president, the executive branch, often has maximal discretion about what to do, particularly as a public safety issue. And that's even true for U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. A U.S. citizen coming in has been a matter of great controversy over the years, as more and more of our lives might be on a laptop that's right, right. Uh, not a netbook that we're bringing in. You may not have a Fourth Amendment right against the search of that or even the seizure of it. Mm-hmm. They'll take the laptop and be like, we'll get that, back to you that later. was a big, uh, I remember there was a, uh, a,
0: a secret Interpol coordinated um, uh, set of laws that were, that was part of some international counterfeiting trade treaty. Do you remember this? No, I don't. There was a, because cause they kept, what they, they had done is, again, this is sort of a little bit obscure, but... Um, and it may have been also somewhat something getting trying to get sneak snuck into TPP as well, but but these international treaties where the different governments have the, the sort of under the auspices of national security negotiate these laws in private. And I remember that they were released very last minute, and then somebody leaked them, and we, we mm. sort of cracked down on. But but it had things like you know you could search people's hard disks and all these different things, and yeah, and this lobbying. And and what's what's weird about. The international law, and this applies to a lot of these transit situations, I think, is that um, they can be negotiated in secrecy, much more than, say, a, a law that would apply um, in the courts inside of... Well, pretty way. much any
1: trade treaty, you know, until they're ready to unveil it, look, everybody, it's the TPP yeah. Short of leaked drafts, it may be hard to know what's in it, whether it's about immigration or mm-hmm. intellectual property or tariffs or whatever it might be. Uh, in the American legal context, there is a lot of elaborated law around the kind of process people are due should they manage to get onto American soil. That's one reason why uh, in preventing mass migration sometimes, the US government has done what it can to prevent people from getting to US soil mm-hmm. or even held people on Guantanamo right. as a way of avoiding... Uh, and, and that's that, why we have Guantanamo, right? Well, that's a part of a the whole thing. conversation yeah. about uh, Guantanamo. But uh, I think for these purposes, The idea is people should know what the process is and what the rules are going to be. Mm -hmm. If you have valid paperwork to get it in this case, you might be a green card holder, a permanent resident, Mm -hmm. for which there's a ton of process to which you are entitled. So the Supreme Court has held from a number of cases Mm -hmm. in the 40s and 50s that if you're not given that process, you may have your rights infringed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The only question is like, Okay, do I wave the card that says stop infringing my rights? That's uh-huh. where lawyers and judges can come in, and uh-huh. that's we've already seen happening. Uh-huh. Now, I think it's probably uh, strategically a good idea to uh, not immediately jump to this is a constitutional crisis. There is a little bit of a fog of confusion because uh-huh. of how abrupt everything is. Yep. If Customs and Border Patrol uh, protection isn't letting... Uh, Members of Congress intervene to see people and again they're members of Congress aren't innately empowered to sort Mm -hmm. of walk past Mm -hmm. a a guard but you would think there's a lot of public representation in these protests uh, uh, made known through social media I think are turning up the heat and they're also I think implicitly letting judges know that if you should intervene and give that temporary restraining order you're not going to be seen by the public mm-hmm. as bringing and, down the republic. And, and this is
0: also an important thing, which is the US's common law, right? Which I think for some people, I mean, for instance, Japan is civil law. So civil law is more like geometry, where you have like a law that gets sort of pushed out. And common law is supposed to represent the. the well, you, you, you explain.
1: Uh, torts professor hat yeah. it's true that for many areas we inherited from the United Kingdom, from Great Britain the common law tradition. but here this is statute, this is treaty, this is I constitutional see. law. so while there's plenty of interpretation that judges rightly must do. Mm-hmm. There is text I in a lot of instances that they're interpreting. There's Congress has passed some stuff, you know. So well, for instance,
0: in this case, I was reading one of the immigration um, lawyer blog posts, which I'll put in the comments if anyone's interested. Yes. But, but, but what was interesting is, sort for instance, Syrians cannot denounce their citizenship. Renounce? Renounce or renounce? Sorry. And so they cannot un-Syrian. You can't themselves. be un-Syrian. Yeah. And there are people who are born in Syria who can't give it up. Mm-hmm. and it's in the when i think it's in the ESTA um part of the uh, the code it says something like the u.s doesn't necessarily care what the other country thinks that we will follow the laws and so, regulations of the u.s but there's no code in the u.s for people like that and so mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a little bit gray when we talk about people with dual nationalities or or they may have had some sort of citizenship that they can't renounce so it puts them in a pickle because they've sworn their allegiance to America, or to Canada, and they can't give away this thing. And so there's just this, this, uh, and and, and how the US law interprets that. That gets kind of
1: crazy, right? Well, of course, surely at any point Congress could, if it hasn't. And I should be very clear right now, as you can probably tell, I'm not an immigration law professor. (laughs) I do internet law, torts, and international law. but. Congress, if it hasn't, would be free to enact a statute that would say for this particular class of people, they're allowed to be as if they are not right, say, right. Syrian citizens if they can't shed it. So. Often, the problem comes on the other side of the spectrum where, for instance, there's a huge debate around uh, birthright citizenship, mm-hmm. that if you're born on American soil, it doesn't matter right. your parents or anything, you are an American citizen. If we didn't have that, you would then have stateless people. People who were born in America, not given American citizenship, and possibly not a citizen of any country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At which point, what do you do with them? They they have no country they're affiliated with. So it's interesting to see the other side of the spectrum of right, right. a citizenship that they can't renounce.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and 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 talking
0: about the protests, so and how we change laws. So so you said you know if Congress decided. Yes. Right, so how do you think? So for, let's assume the protests continue, right? And let's assume uh, we start to rattle up Congress. What what would be now, place civics professor? How, what what's the next step? Do you think? And so there's a ninety day. Uh, yeah. Executive order. What, what would
1: normally happen? Well, there's a, a few things. And it's funny to have a little bit of whiplash going from a Congress that- Good, good name. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, going from, he, he wrote a book called Whiplash, which if you're watching this, you probably know that. But by Joey's book. And it's Creative Commons, is it not? No, sorry. It's, it's not Creative Commons? Sure, you're the former CEO of Creative Commons and it's not Creative yeah, Commons? Unfortunately, no. Shame I on agree. Joey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> that was made of advertising gone horribly awry. Uh, the original question though was, RIPLASH because Congress goes by its own accounts to being, uh, from being completely gridlocked, barely even able to pass an appropriations bill, which you need to kind of keep the water running and the lights on to suddenly, because it's a consistent party, Republican, in the House, in the Senate, and now in the presidency, to the skids are greased, we're going to pass a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, there's not just the question of statutes, which uh, in the Senate there still exists the filibuster. Democratic senators are figuring out when they want to pull that lever and filibuster something. Um, Should it remain, it's, it's possible that Republicans could try to remove it even for uh, just plain old law. But uh, there's another form of leverage or or, uh, multiple forms of leverage that Congress could have if it wanted. One is exercising its oversight authority. It has subpoena power. It can ask for documents. It can call people to testify. It can really turn up the heat on the executive branch, as we saw when the executive branch was uh, uh, run by Democrats and the Congress run by Republicans. That's exactly what you saw in the oversight committees. Mm-hmm. They're really going after people um, day in, day out. That function has not yet been exercised. It's a new Congress, it's a new presidency, but you can imagine, for obvious reasons, there's not a huge appetite to do that. So a lot of the things that people have been um, nervous about having to do with Trump's conflicts of interests, his uh, refusal to release his tax returns, all that kind of stuff, questions about the emoluments, clauses. Mm -hmm. Normally, Congress would be, through its subpoena power and investigative power, able to push on that, and Mm -hmm. potentially right, lurking in the background is the impeachment power, Mm -hmm. which is supposed to be the ultimate remedy if the president is way out of line. All of those things have been generally off the table. The other lever that Congress would have, especially early in an administration like this, would be uh, the advice and consent of the Senate to executive branch appointments. And you could see, I wouldn't be surprised if Democratic senators newly emboldened by the public outcry Mm -hmm. and by the abruptness of things going on, saying, you know what, we need to slow down these appointments until X, Y, or Z happens. And Mm -hmm. that could be a way... Now, it used to be uh, appointment... Uh, Consent to appointments was filibusterable. Mm -hmm. No longer the Democrats actually Mm -hmm. removed that Mm -hmm. and it's true that in the previous Congress you had uh, One ambassador who was waiting for you know multiple years ultimately died of cancer Mm -hmm. uh, Before being appointed and the senator with the hold on her nomination um, I think Cassandra Butts was Mm -hmm. the name Um, was quite open about the fact it was nothing personal. It didn't have to do with her qualifications or concern. It was just about leverage over the president. So you could see maybe something like that Mm -hmm. coming up now with the public out uh, in force, at least segments of the public, Mm -hmm. twice in one nine-day period.
0: Interesting. And I mean, one of the things that we we talked about um, in a previous conversation with Jamila, who works in nonviolent protest, nonviolent action was, um the, the role of social media in a lot of this and so one of the interesting things and so talk about other protests for a second but but or take arab spring or maybe even standing rock where if you go back to let's say the civil rights movement or you know gandhi or any of these sort of famous historical movements um it took a lot of time to set up and coordinate so you built um, institutions you had networks of churches you had training and so once it wasn't just the protests the protests were sort of a piece of a very well coordinated physical institution with buildings and people and and um, you know Maryam Wright Edelman becoming a lawyer so she could fight and but now you see sort of the ability to have these flash protests that are coordinated very quickly and well coordinated but not needing to build up the, Institutional power. So, after the protest, after you overthrow the dictator, or you finish the TV spot that gets you all the attention, there's not a lot of a sort of inertia to keep a group going to sit there and rebuild it. And it feels like right. So we kind of forget about things, and then we're on to the next thing. And so, so I don't know if you've thought about how we then make sure that these protests don't just end in a thing that people can just hide from for a while and then pop back.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a a couple issues at work. One is I think with a phenomenon like the Arab spring, these are taking place in countries that don't have mature civic institutions and they have not embraced the rule of law. Mm -hmm. So if you have an authoritarian country or an outright dictatorship that crumbles partly as the result of social media, degree of which uh, social media is responsible is still a matter of great study, but you've got a much greater gap as to what comes next when you have such an abrupt collapse. I mean look at the collapse of the Soviet Union as well, which was not abetted by social media at the time, um, but often was attributed in part to fax machines and such. So uh, that's one issue. Of course in a place like the United States, where, make no mistake, whatever people are feeling right now, we have mature civic institutions. I think it may be less a question of when the dog catches the car, what's the Mm follow-through, and more, most of these technologies that are being used to organize people, to broadcast live out of a living room and just reach as many people as care to tune in and share it, they start off a little bit in a corner. It's just something that even... The uh, intermediaries who facilitate it, such as Facebook, don't have a firm, but Facebook was not like what we need right now is an Arab Spring. There's a market for us. Mm-hmm. You know it's not a particularly profitable market. It just happened. And in our classes, you know, we kind of really reflect on, and at a point celebrate that form of generativity. And right. it's what Ethan Zuckerman in your lab calls the cute cat theory of technology, that people will adopt something to show pictures of cute cats. And then when the right moment comes, Mm -hmm. suddenly all of that technology that we thought was ossified for one use gets picked up and used Mm -hmm. for another purpose. Mm -hmm. But we can't stop the story there because as soon as the powers that be, fill in the blank who they might be, realize that use, it comes to attention precisely because it was used so powerfully and unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. Now they say, how can we use it or who can we write a check to that can use it for us and that's a kind of second order effect where i think we saw plenty of that where in twitter during the election season people think they're talking to one another they may be talking to an agent of another state somebody who's just paid by the hour to troll Mm -hmm. and built into the platform are not obvious ways of telling who is who and when that happens what we are using as Uh, a rank of public sentiment. There's all these startups that do Mm -hmm. sentiment analysis on Twitter, Mm -hmm. Twitter is upset today. Who knows if it means anything? Because as a second order effect, it's now being used Mm -hmm. to fake the sentiment that the detector is trying to detect. Which is interesting why when it comes back around to physical public protest, citizens can see one another Mm -hmm. at Mm -hmm. the rally. That's a neat blend of the new tech with a physical showing up and that's why I would not be quick to say oh this is just this is real life slacktivism now they're mm-hmm. at the airport but you know where mm-hmm. will they be on Tuesday mm-hmm. it's a big step and it's an affirming one for whatever protest group happens to gather for any cause mm-hmm. that says wow I dropped everything on a Tuesday and so did a lot of other people to do this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so to, if, to
0: sort of Replay the thing and compress it. You're saying that possibly Arab Spring, there, the difficulty there was not so much that they weren't organized, but that the state wasn't in a, a uh,
1: in 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 shape. There was only a state, and the mm-hmm. state was only a gang mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. many instances. Right. And so, so the the question really is in the United
0: States: How robust are our institutions? Right? It's 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 we've had. Protests change laws in the past. And so how are things different if they are? Um, how is this administration different? Um, uh, I think the role of press is very different, right? Because I think in the past, you know, with um, Richard Nixon, um, the press played a huge role in sort of just going after him. And can the press continue that? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, we're in a different place. Yes. And, and does social media have the power because it, in ways it does, right? Because like you said, you can you can take pictures of the protests, you can you can post it, but but with all of this blah blah about fake news, people are just at this moment sort of feeling a little bit uncomfortable believing everything they see on on on, on, on social media. So so there's a, there's some doubt cast over that, and then then you have you know Trump even calling the New York times fake news. Right. So, 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 so You're on the board
1: of the New York times, like, oh, how did that feel, oh, Joey? Yeah, it felt
0: good. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't feel good, but it doesn't, but, but, but that, but it, it feels weird because when you sit in the boardroom of the New York times, yes. Um, I, and I look around in the boardroom, there's actually photos of every president, you know? Yes. Um, and you sort of imagine what it was like back when Nixon was sitting here, sitting across from, you know, our editorial board and today, right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, I mean, Good news is Trump still came to talk to The New York Times, so it still matters, but but it probably matters in a different way, right? So so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, because because that, that's the other estate, right, is is, is you, the, the press play a really important role in taking these things and connecting it. And so the question really is, but, but you know, I, in our class, I think we had, you know, that um, Mark Zuckerberg saying very clearly he is not an editor, right? And so the whole point is that these platforms we have today they they don't have spotlight teams, right? So so what and they so so that's that's a question is does this what's the process like with a slightly different relationship with the press, do you think?
1: Well, I feel like you've raised two points at least. One is if you end up as Robert A. Heinlein would say, with trust no one, trust no institution, everything is poisoned. That I think leads to a form of epistemic paralysis where uh, it's really hard to get a sense of what's going on because you're not trusting anything. Mm -hmm. And that is really poisonous to a free society. Um, So that would be quite unfortunate. And there may well be people or institutions or organizations for whom it is to their strategic benefit as they see it Mm -hmm. to inspire that kind of cynicism. And when we read accounts, that sure seemed historical about the toolkit of authoritarians, of um, totalitarians. Hannah Arendt has been very popular lately. It's interesting to see, even though it was a completely different information environment, there was no internet, Mm -hmm. there were some of these points about the value to a leader of a certain stripe of having there be public doubt about every possible alternative source of information mm-hmm. except the mm-hmm. government and the leader, right. him or herself. Um, so that's, that's one thing about, I, I think, being able to vest some trust, mm-hmm. while still being healthily skeptical, in some places that are working hard to earn it mm-hmm. and maintain it. Um, the, there's another issue, though, that you raised, which has to do with, you mentioned Mark Zuckerberg says... Facebook is not a publisher. Facebook is just a technology. It's mm-hmm. a technology company. It's a platform. So the fact that Facebook is, quote, allowing us to do this broadcast right now doesn't mean Facebook approves of us. or dis- Like, Facebook has other things to do. They've got although other they, fish they, to fry. Although
0: they will shut certain things down. Well, exactly. But, but, uh, so, so that's why it's kind of odd. I but, agree with right? that. Right?
1: Yeah. So, But this is still nascent. It's early 2017. To the extent that these things have power...
0: You'll get shut down more quickly by... Broadcasting in parallel to YouTube, than what we say, probably. But anyway, that right? that's in the terms of service. Yeah, we can't do this, unfortunately. Really? Yeah. You can't broadcast to YouTube. If you can then... broadcast to Facebook. You can't broadcast anywhere else the same stream. Because it's
1: wasting bits or something? Or yeah. obviously because they want exclusive lock on the yeah. Thanks but, but, Facebook. Facebook. But, but I did
0: call them, and I'm, we're allowed to broadcast to two different Facebook pages. That's allowed.
1: Well, that's a relief. <laughs> But 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 this
0: is the well, thing, right? So, mean, so it's, and the architecture is focused on right. different algorithms.
1: So when Facebook was about primarily cute cats, and let's be clear, people are still using it primarily for that in large large measure. When it was about that, how Facebook chooses to rank something, whether or not it's shutting down one kind of feed or another, I think innately felt like it mattered less. And we should be clear in the American context, say under the First Amendment, Facebook would generally be free to do it at once. It's a private company. It's not the government deciding who to allow you into an airport Facebook to protest. Financing. Yes, <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking through Facebook to the viewer uh, and hoping that Facebook doesn't lower a portcullis between us. Uh, but especially when you talk about AI, yeah. you can come up with all sorts of algorithms. And also note, by the way, I don't know if any of you watching live has seen this yet, a little bubble may have appeared next to your live Chiron that says... <laughs> that uh by the way your new pet thing go <laughs> yeah that's true right so you sometimes get into my pet yeah, things yeah. too um that your identity is going to be shared with us because we originated the broadcast and with everybody else watching now if it's about sharing a fun moment with a capybara like that's one thing that's cool right and joey was the first one out it's so useful to see who's watching our stuff and you know hi everybody nice to meet you Uh, On the other hand, imagine you're a U.S. government employee on your weekend, on your spare time, and you are watching a Facebook live stream of a protest at Dulles, and your identity is being shared with everybody. That is very bad. That's like, you know, going to the library and taking out a book, and believe me, librarians will get up in arms to defend your right to check out a book and not have the fact that you happen to want to look at it, be shareable with the public. And it's one thing to say, well, we need a funding model for Facebook, and this helps with monetization. But when you're talking about these mechanisms being part of a civic lifeblood, Mm -hmm. the idea that, oh, if you want to go to a rally, you have to show your ID on the way in, and therefore share your name with every other person at the rally, whether or not it's like a friend of yours or somebody who's actually against the cause but wants to take lists of names. I can think of all sorts of instances in recent American history, uh, NAACP versus Button, cases where uh, the state wanted to know the membership list of the NAACP. And there's a First Amendment, freedom of assembly, mm-hmm. not to have that list just handed over on a whim. And similarly here, the idea that watching somebody on Facebook Live show a protest could get you in trouble with your employer, with the government. That's crazy pants. now facebook hasn't thought about this one way or the other and they're kind of just you know hiding under a table waiting for it to go away there's actually
0: an incident i remember during the iranian um protests during the election and i think facebook changed the privacy settings so that suddenly you could see people's friends or something like that and that suddenly put a lot of these protesters at risk and they they quickly i think reverted and then i think there was a I think that's that was the time, but there was basically a privacy change that, that changed a bunch of things. And then there's also the more um, brute force one, which is uh, my friend Basel, who we are afraid is now dead. But when he was uh, organizing in, in Syria, uh, he used Facebook. And the first thing they did once they tortured him was got his Gmail and his Facebook password. Yes. And then they traverse his Facebook network and looked for other people, right? Yes. So so one of the other things, which is another thing that I, I once you leave America, but maybe even America at some level, um, you know, things are only as secure as, you know, people's ability to not be coerced. And I think one of the scary things about these social networks is once you get into, because you, can you imagine if all of our Facebook feeds were, penetrated somehow and how much information they would have, you know, and, and, and I think that, and we talk about signal intelligence, but the, the network map of connections is much more interesting than the information on your locked iPhone, frankly. Um, I mean, that would be useful for a specific instance where you're going to go after a person, but if you're trying to cast a wide net to say, who are the people who I don't like, um, the, the network is really much more valuable.
1: Well, it's also why you see, uh, for cases where there's lives at stake and such, I can see it being hard to demand that Facebook conform its general services to be you know, penetration proof or helpful there. Mm-hmm. Facebook may be entitled to say, like, look, that's not what we're for. If you want to try to use us for that, it's at your own risk. And you can even see new applications being made available so long as app stores are not themselves regulated. That's another story because they are being regulated. Uh, in places like China. But uh, you can see open whisper systems come about and say, all right, here's Signal. Mm -hmm. Hey, everybody, let's use Signal. Let's use WhatsApp, whatever it might be, branch of uh, Facebook.
0: Sorry. Sorry to interrupt, but Saul Tenenbaum says that um, immigration agents are asking for access to social media accounts for people entering the US. So,
1: so, and I- I think that's a proposal. They may in some instances do it. There's a proposal afoot that it be routine. I see But it's Treasurer. just a proposal because, and,
0: and this, this, this now we'll get back to a little bit something from the class. I think where again, in immigration, you have one set of rules, but I think there was a case, right? Or I, 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 I I'm trying to remember where, where, I saw this online, but basically saying that, a, a, an officer might ask you your password to unlock a phone, but you're currently not required to give that password. Is that true?
1: Okay. <laughs> let's go Let's talk about that real quick. Um, Suppose uh, you've encrypted something, maybe it's your iPhone Mm -hmm. and they've got the iPhone and they want to get into it and you don't want to cough up the password. There have been questions over the years about whether with process, the government gets a warrant, they have probable cause, they've done all the paperwork, can they compel you on pain of jail for contempt if you should refuse Mm -hmm. to give up that password? And there's been some theorizing that it would violate the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination to have to do it because it might be seen as uh, testimonial. Mm -hmm. You're describing something that the government might then use against you. The general reaction to that, with some exceptions, has Mm -hmm. been the government can say, all right, we will give you immunity. We will not use against you the fact that you knew the password to this phone to tie the phone to you. That won't be used against you. But the contents of the phone mm-hmm. are not coming from you, they're coming from the phone. So now you have to give up the password.
0: And I remember now there was a I think a particular case where there was a raid on a house, I think it was, and the officers asked everyone for their phones and their passwords or something like yes. that. And and that became the 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 but 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 it it does sort of bring up this sort of meta point, which again gets into some of the um uh conversations and sort of theorizing we had um In our class, which is when you have a real live cryptographer in front of you, you can actually design things that are very clever, like that you can't unlock it yourself except on Fridays at 3 p.m. Or that if something happens, you can't do this. Or Or you can put in, you can have two passwords, the
1: password to get to your stuff and the password that's a distress call that wipes out most of the sensitive stuff and just presents some cats and it's a cat account. Yeah. yeah. And, and so,
0: so the, the interesting thing is there's the law, but once you sort of start to understand where the law is going to be, you can also create te- technologies that make the law somewhat.
1: So long as the law is calculable and consistent. That's right. So the law may not be how you like it to be, but if it is public and you know what it is, and it tends to say, we, we talked about this in the context of all things in copyright, on inducement theory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When the Grokster case came down from the U.S. Supreme Court about 10 years ago, uh, the makers of Grokster could be in trouble because their software was encouraging people, inducing people to infringe copyright. Mm-hmm. So shame on you, Grokster. Um, a number of lawyers wrote up documents that said, we've parsed the Supreme Court opinion, if you want to write software to allow peer-to-peer sharing, here's how to do it and release it without being in legal jeopardy under the Grokster opinion. Mm-hmm. But that requires the rule of law. It requires, mm-hmm. all right, Supreme Court said, here's the boundary, here's what, right.
0: you know. And, 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 and it's one thing if you are, you know, have the Harvard Law Clinic behind you and you're taking a case to a federal court. It's a completely other thing when you're at some airport or you're being pulled over by a policeman and... There's all these videos you see where they say somebody says, "Well, I know my rights," and the cop says, "Yeah, whatever, right?" And and yeah. so I mean, I'm and I don't want to sound negative to policemen. There are great policemen out there, but but when in the moment, like you were said, you know, it, there's there's a lot of stuff where the law doesn't really well, seem to matter. I mean, in
1: a country that is mature in its embrace of the rule of law, generally everybody benefits when he or she knows these are these are the rules of the road. Mm-hmm. The police officer is like, just tell me what I can do or what I can't do. Right. And where I have discretion, try not to second guess me mm-hmm. too much because mm-hmm. it's an exigent situation. It's you never know if somebody's armed, all that kind of right. stuff. But it's where the rules might be intentionally left unclear. Yeah. This is where Kafka or, 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 starts right when they're yeah. in
0: conflict, right? Because I, I, as a photographer, I remember for yes. a whole...
1: still going on. Yeah, where you, you
0: have the right to take photographs, but you're harassed yes. by security guards and law enforcement. And, and it's, yes. it's a weird... you know. And, and you can sit there, and I remember carrying around this card, but still not, yes. you know, not sure I wouldn't want to play that card. Right? Yes,
1: and there's an important point to make technology and law and say, which are we going to be trusting the most? And often the ears are, I don't trust those shifty lawyers... I want encryption that's bulletproof and I'm going to learn how to use it. And then boom, I'm done. You can't, you can't get to this stuff. And I think there's certainly a role for technology to play to keep certain balance maintained on the ground. But I think that too quickly gives up on the rule of law. It's really hard if our last redoubt, it's like saying, well, I've got a bunker and I've got food and my own water supply, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm good. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you know, let's not give up on the municipal water supply. Let's mm-hmm. not give up on the idea of a functioning society. And technology can help keep the traffic, in this case, the government traffic, within the lanes that mm-hmm. are roughly agreed upon. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ability of people to document encounters with the authorities, which has been a matter of some controversy, I think, you know, with exceptions, there's been a sense even among the authorities that it can be quite helpful for them to have a recording Mm -hmm. and to then...
0: Although there's a second order effect of maybe now they don't want to go into situations where they may have to make tough decisions and those areas may be under
1: police now. And certainly if people know they're being filmed, they may act a lot differently. Maybe if their goal is to provoke, on either side now right. the camera will mm-hmm. uh, maybe produce that more this is all in part um, terra incognito for us as a society mm-hmm. and uh, this gets back we've, we've let Facebook off the hook too easily it's one thing for Facebook to say look we're just we're a social network we're a platform we have certain features we're not about helping people in a war zone Mm -hmm. organize their resistance. But when you see hundreds of thousands of people actually using it for purposes that have a civic political piece to it, I think it is vital for Facebook, not just to say, if somebody wants a feed taken down, that's a customer service issue. Please Mm -hmm. click here to say, I don't like this. And if enough people click it, maybe in some obscure way it will be taken down. Mm That just that does not seem mm-hmm. the right way to run this kind of thing, and it, and it's an older case.
0: But I remember when um, there were all of these documented police brutality cases against uh, Egyptian um, police, and all of this was documented on YouTube. Yes, and somebody did a copyright violation claim and they all disappeared from all the blogs because they're embedded and, and and again using things like copyright to go after and probably a fake copyright. Well DMCA that,
1: takedowns right? are surely their own story and you can look at that either way. For any given takedown that may not have merit, it may be a lot to ask of a Facebook or a Google, whoever's right. the target of the takedown notice, Bing, to be able to evaluate it in this full yeah. way. On the other hand, that regime is what gave those platforms license to set it and forget it. We didn't have to navigate any right. and, maze to start broadcasting. And,
0: and this gets to your cat thing, right?
1: As yeah. long as
0: we're sharing cats, that's fine.
1: But now... Unless when, it's Garfield. that's you know, <laughs> yeah. copyright trademark problem. Or Mickey. And, yeah.
0: But, but once, once we start trying to use these platforms for mission-critical, yes. c- civil, civic reasons, I think we need to sort of say, is this tool that we're using the right tool?
1: Well, I, I was going to say, too, that... that opens up beautifully another point, which is it's not like these tools have to be run in a corporate model. Mm -hmm. For everything you can think of um, that is run by a corporation, it could be a so-called collective hallucination free and open app Mm -hmm. with its own advantages and disadvantages and and vice versa. Wikipedia could have been edit your own Encarta and if Microsoft had been a little faster on, you know, retooling Encarta, people might get little Microsoft credits or something for doing an edit right. to an Encarta article, and then you'd feel like a chump mm-hmm. for starting Wikipedia. Uh, on the other hand, you could see, and there have been, Facebook implementations mm-hmm. that are free and open, mm-hmm. which would then have implications for the kind of gatekeeping that intermediary could do and would do, for and, better or worse. And, and,
0: and I think that's where, you know, if the market needs are, I mean, and, and again. Because if you're starting from a market need where a corporation is going to be most likely to fulfill that need, it makes sense for a for-profit to be that
1: f- thing. I think that's right, but it also presumes that some corporation hired McKinsey and was like, we've got a war chest, mm-hmm. where's a need, let's fill it. Right. If that were how it happened you'd have Tiffany or what I was so what I was going to say right.
0: though was but is if you look at the history of Unix or yes. if you and Linux or if you look at e- even Wikipedia I mean I think what happens is that sometimes the first phase is done for cats so it's a, a corporate entity yes. doing it makes a lot of sense. Yes. But for instance if you then suddenly Richard Stallman enters the picture and says no freedom is actually more important than the efficiency of corporations. And he's able to rally enough people around this idea to create free and open source software. And, and and you look at like, you know, smartphones and then the Android. And and so I think sometimes things do start out in the corporate world, but it's possible that the, that we, again, this is somewhat hopeful thinking, but wishful thinking, but you could imagine that if this became critical enough and there were enough people who wanted to participate, because this gets into that, that diagram that we use with, with that, that um, Lessig did, which, where you have law, and then you have norms, you have markets, and you have technology, and you have people who participate in all these yes. things, just like lawyers do pro bono work, yes. the protests are doing sort of, you know, volunteer norms work, you know, there, and, and now you have things like Code for America, and other things where people are actually thinking, and and, and the Presidential Innovation Fellows jumping in, and, coding as part of their service. Right? Yes. So so you could imagine, again, wishful thinking, but you could imagine that not just sort of, you know, the, the kind of open source and f- free community, but you could imagine sort of a more technology enhanced civics taking hold and saying, no, this is actually in fact the role of the government or the role of some other non-commercial entity. And with the tools getting better, um, it's possible, I think, that, that you'll start to see some of these platforms becoming non-commercial?
1: Absolutely possible. I guess I'd complicate it a little bit, I hope helpfully, because a lot of the stuff that we think of as these corporate behemoths started to fill the desperate need for cat photos that Mm -hmm. a public is willing to pay either money or view ads next to it to see so you can monetize it. A lot of these things started without that in mind. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook in a dorm room. as just a thing to do. Mm -hmm. Google was started at Stanford explicitly as a non-commercial search engine because it was part of a PhD program. And, you know, Larry and Sergey wanted to start it up. They published a paper in 1998 about Google precisely as non-commercial. Then they face a fork on the road. Do you want to commercialize this? Can't blame them. Or do you want to... Well, it, Keep it, it non-commercial. It, it, it starts
0: the minute you take the money, right? So, so yes. for instance, I, 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 until recently, was on the board of Mozilla. But Mozilla, because it was started as an open and non-profit entity, and even though... From
1: a corporate entity from a corporate that had a entity, browser, right. yeah, but, but, yeah, yeah.
0: But, you know, Mitchell Baker and Mitch Kapoor, and yes. the, the founders, they locked it open. And yes. even though we created a corporation to do Firefox, it was wholly owned yes. by a, a, a non-profit. Yes. And, and, and we... It's it's a, it's it's it, you you can't and, and and Wikipedia is sort of the same way. There's they're very valuable entities that are locked in the public, right? Yes. And so so I think they're it's doable. And the question is, I mean, <laughs> there are sort of anomalies, right? There aren't very very many of them, but it's possible that that as as coding becomes easier yes. and as society changes,
1: I guess I would just want, if we're talking to would be founders out there, people hacking cool stuff. It's one thing to say to those folks like, "So, what's your call? You're going to go the corporate route and take the money, or are you going to go the non-commercial, free and open route?" There are decision points like that, but there are also ways to say, "Well, yeah, I'm going to take the money, but don't be evil." You know, to say I want to embed limits or ethics in what I'm doing commercially.
0: Kickstarter is a great example. So I was an investor in Kickstarter. They said, "Oh, you know what? We're not going to go public." And if you want to go public and you want to make lots of money like that, we'll buy you out. And I'm still a shareholder. And
1: they. Are I figured they'd do a Kickstarter for Kickstarter, <laughs> a meta-Kickstarter. Yes, Sorry. It's,
0: it's actually probably time to wind up pretty soon anyway. <laughs> <laughs> a joke so bad it ended the broadcast. <laughs> but no, but, 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 but they, they sort of announced that they're going to grow in sort of an organic and healthy way. And so, yes. so I think there is an appetite for for-profits not being... Because I think the problem is once you go public, your investors become this sort of faceless... Sh- sort of short-term money yeah and it, it and again it, it does put pressure on your company in, in 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 a new way um but but we're sort of at the the magic moment i mean do you i think maybe we should end by talking a little bit about so we have got all these kids out there just finished the protests there's a lot of pressure what's what's the long game and what what should we now that people are getting home i mean we'll probably continue to protest but, yes. but what's what from some from a sort of civics and law perspective, what should we be paying attention to?
1: Probably two things. The first is uh, realizing that the question of identity, who am I, is not just I am the sum of my preferences and what I obtain. I am part of a community of a polity, maybe of more than one of each, and I have some role to play in it rather than outsourcing it to others who are professional polity people, i.e. Mm-hmm. politicians. Mm-hmm. That that form of civic engagement really is, it's trite but it's so true, vital in a democracy. Like an emergent democracy. We've got a little complacent, yeah. uh, all of us. Mm-hmm. And that leads, to, I think, to my second point too, which is a democracy benefits. The framers of the Constitution, I think, knew this and many others since we benefit with disagreement. Mm -hmm. That the point of a functioning polity is to channel disagreement. If we didn't disagree, you wouldn't have to take a vote. That, and the vote is just the culmination of what's supposed to be a very textured process. Mm -hmm. And to encounter somebody who doesn't agree with you, if you can have that disagreement in good faith and just be like, how interesting, you don't agree with me. And I don't, well, let's let's compare notes. Let's sort this out.
0: Don't agree with See? that. See, <laughs> well, how nice. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean,
1: yeah. that's called uh, by different names, but um, that's that's the basic undergirding mm-hmm. of a functioning democratic system. Yeah. And I, without it, and and, and I, I do feel like you know, I, the, one of the
0: chants they're doing at the protests that I've been watching is just um, what, what was it? Um, it's about democracy. That this, this is, this is democracy, and yes. it's. It and I think it's interesting because some people think of democracy as just this kind of, um, people have an opinion and they vote, but it's actually this. Democracies need to be disobedient, robust, right? I mean, we, I, that's the way I like to think about the lab. But you need dissenting voices that are out there poking at you, in order for you to change your laws, for yes. you to change your mind. And I think that that suppressing that that dissent is really. Um, if you're a healthy democracy, that's
1: bad for your health. I think that's right. And along with it is it really helps if you encounter the voice, not as a disembodied voice, an egg throwing stuff at you and you throw some stuff back, but as a, just a fellow person. Yeah. Like that's that's what it's about. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Joy. See you guys later. Cheers.